Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm David Breer. This week, we're bringing you a bumper episode of interviews recorded live from Money 2020 in Amsterdam at the start of this month. This episode, we're bringing you a payment special with interviews from top leaders in the payment space, including Harsh Sinner, the CTO of TransferWise, Patrick Gautier, VP of Amazon Pay, Roland Palmer, head of Alipay Amir, and Mark Barnett, who is the president of UK, Ireland, Nordics, and Baltics at MasterCard. Let's get started. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. Uh, we're at Money 2020 in Amsterdam. I'm Jason Bates, and today I'm joined by Harsh Sinha. Thanks for having me, Jason. Thanks for being here. This is take two, because I'm completely messed up the first one. So I'm hopefully going to get this one right. But Harsh is from TransferWise. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your role there and, and yeah, how you're finding it here today. Yeah, so um, I'm uh, Harsh, uh, head up engineering at TransferWise. Been with the company for about four years. Um, and uh, I head up the, uh, all the technology build out that we're doing that powers the, basically the world's plumbing that we're building to move money around the world. Um, the team has grown quite a bit. Uh -huh. So f over the last four years, we've gone from about 50 engineers to 350 engineers across uh, six locations uh -huh. and growing strong. And the business has grown quite a bit too. Um, so we're moving about uh, 4 billion pounds a month now through our pipes, uh, serving 5 million customers. But uh, the number we're most proud of is that uh, we're saving our customers about uh, 1 billion in, uh, pounds per year. Uh, by using us versus if they were using the traditional banking system wow. to move money around the world. Yeah. Excellent. And you've had big news recently of becoming the most valuable fintech startup in Europe. The, yeah. the king unicorn. <laughs> yeah, well, we're more proud of the previous number I said, which is the <laughs> 1 billion saved for our customers. So TransferWise has um, evolved from a peer-to-peer -peer service to a fully-fledged platform. Can you, can you talk to us about that, about the engineering challenges, I guess, there? Yeah, so um, when we started, we were starting, we started from a basis of solving a problem that the founders had. Um, you know, like most companies have this same thing, like somebody sees a problem that they want to solve for themselves and it's basically moving money between friends uh, and moving mostly money between Europe. Uh, from there, we started uh, building a system which allowed us to move money globally more. So going beyond moving GBP to Euro and Euro to GBP to moving current, uh, money between 49 currencies. And right now we're serving around 1600 routes. Um, but as we build this consumer business, basically what it was, uh, and over the last eight years as we've grown it, we realized the secret sauce has been the hard work we've done in building the, the pipes that integrate directly into the local banking system of each country. Uh, and that allows us to bypass some of the older infrastructure that allows people to move money around the world, mainly correspondent banking setup. And uh, yeah, so that secret sauce, or that, I guess it's not a secret, it's just a, a hard network to build. Um, that is now strong enough that we've started opening it up as a platform for other people to build on. Um, we fundamentally believe that you know, it's a consumer or a business looks for convenience, and convenience is where your money is. So for a lot of people, that could be in your bank account. A lot of people, that could be in your day-to-day -day workflow software that you're using, let's say you're an accountant. And how do we enable TransferWise to be present in all these different locations so that you're just one click away from accessing the same pipes that people would access when they were come to a site or a mobile apps, basically effectively doing the same work of moving money around the world. Um, and the challenges has been pretty interesting. So um, it's a very different problem to solve, right? Like you're going from allowing a few people to come to your site or your apps and being able to create a transfer order or you know, top up your borderless card to having an API integration uh, where the bar is much higher. Like companies are programmatically sending you 
a lot of funds. Um, uh, so there's things around scalability, availability, uptime, but it's also like requires a different kind of mindset from an engineering perspective to really build systems to uh, scale, um, to look at different traffic patterns. Um, over time, like uh, also as we're getting more valuable, interesting people who might not always be interested in being a customer, but thinking about it from a perspective of security, how are we making sure things are very secure? Because once you open up APIs, there's sure. you know, more damage you could do over a uh, programmatic interface. Um, but overall, I think um, the fundamentals are still the same. How do you build a strong team, which thinks mm. about customer first, uh, but there's now multiple customers, not just a consumer. Um, I find it interesting that it's not just uh, about the product, but about building that organization that can make a product and iterate it and continue to, to build that up. Uh, I, we talk to banks a lot about operating models and how do you organize uh, you know, versus the traditional silo. I've always been fascinated by sort of TransferWise's evolution. You know, we've, we hear a lot about the Spotify model, but, but can you talk to me a little bit about how yeah. you organize as an organization? Yeah, so we're organized in... Um Autonomous independent teams, um, and that's a mouthful, so I'll explain what that is. But basically the idea is um, these teams are small teams which are working on a specific customer problem, and they have a KPI which, they, um, which chases the customer problem. So let's take an example of um, Australia. So you'll have a team on the Australian market, and they are fully independent and autonomous to decide what they're going to uh, work on to help the Australian customer. The main uh, metric they're chasing is adding new users from Australia and enabling more people from Australia to send money around the world. Okay. Now, they are closest to the customers, so they have all the rights to make the decisions, okay. as opposed to in most traditional organizations where decisions are made way top up in the hierarchy and then float down. Sure. Um, so we've had this model for a long time now, uh, I think over five years. And this allow has allowed us to run a lot more parallel teams sure. and let, let decision-making be much more closer to the customer. Um, so there's pros and cons to this, right? So there's a lot of things around, um, there might be some duplication that we might see in the organization, like one team might be a little bit siloed than the other, and they might build some stuff which is common. Um, but I think that's fine. What we are optimizing for at this stage of the company, and I think most op companies should optimize for, is speed. Uh, I fundamentally believe that companies that iterate faster and fail faster will eventually succeed. If I can run more experiments and get more feedback from my customers faster than you can, you know, giving everything else as being the same, I should be able to build a better product and succeed faster. So, I mean, that's the whole premise. Uh, so now we have 42 product teams. Oh, wow. Um, but there are a few things that are underlying in that uh, uh, culture that we, uh, I think, helps us operate better. One of the things is um, we run a very open and transparent culture. So teams have to write up their plans for the quarter, publish it in an open doc, and anybody in the organization can read through it, give feedback on it, comments on it, and the team takes that feedback and iterates on it. Okay. Um, and that allows us also to be able to disseminate information very quickly so people know what's going on in different parts of the company. Um, but I think that open feedback culture also helps us to like, you know, keep the customer in mind first and not work through other stuff that can happen in organizations like building large you know, empires and stuff. So that prevents people from uh, doing that kind of stuff and focusing on the customer. And so uh, last year you launched MasterCard, uh, you, you launched a MasterCard called the Borderless Account. Was that created by one of these teams? How did yeah. that come to fruition? Yeah, so uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, we, had, um, uh, we had applied for our e-money license um, and then that came through. And then one of our product managers decided to leave his team. So the way we think about uh, uh, TransferWise is their startups, these teams are startups within a startup. And you've been a founder, you know how this works is, uh, you know, uh, founders are very driven by the, the, the mission and these people are driven by the mission of the team. 
So one of our product managers decided to be a founder in the company and said, hey, now that we have this capability, should we explore uh, the capability of allowing people to hold money and also let's allow them to issue uh, cards to access that money. Uh, so it started off with uh, that person and then a few other folks starting to like um, put together to solve this customer problem. We had heard this from some of our customers already coming in, like, hey, I love your service. I would love to get a card that we could like use when I'm traveling for my business expenses uh, and to pay customers and pay clients. So it was something that was already coming through our customer feedback. I still needed to be uh, evaluated to see if uh, this would be something that we should do. And we could build because there were other solutions out there in the market. Lo and behold, uh, what, one and a half, almost two years later, we now have uh, uh, two billion pounds in deposits. Wow. And we've been live in the UK and Europe uh, for two years, and uh, we'll be launching US and Australia this year. And you recently opened in Belgium. Um, uh, to, yeah. I guess this is a hedging Brexit thing, no? Yeah, I mean, um, Brexit definitely is one of the reasons. Um, we are always looking to see um, how do we make sure our customers get the best experience on our product. And one of the advantages of being in the EU has been the passporting setup that allows us to you know, have the UK license but then be able to provide services all over the EU. Uh, with the Brexit uncertainty, we obviously had to make sure that we were still able to continue to provide services to our EU customers. And we worked with the Belgian regulator. We looked at a few other countries, but then the Belgian regulator impressed us by the understanding of the payments landscape overall. Um, so, and they also, uh, the directives and the licensing stuff was similar to what we have currently in the UK. So you wouldn't have to change the product a lot more. So that allows us to build a convenient and simple experience for the customers in the era. Interesting. Um, so, but you personally relocated from Silicon Valley. How have you found that? Uh, it's been pretty interesting. So four years ago, I decided to join TransferWise. Um, some of my friends were saying, wait, you're leaving the Valley to go to Europe to join a startup? Uh, that was a, a pretty interesting move. Um, and I, was, I had other opportunities too, but one of the main things that drew me towards TransferWise was the mission and the problem that we are solving. Uh, being an immigrant uh, for most of my life, uh, having lived abroad, uh, I know the problem firsthand. Uh, and the second thing was just the team. And when I met the team, like, the people who were working on the problem were pretty smart and uh, pretty inspiring to see how far they had gotten already. Um, yeah, but living in uh, Europe has definitely been interesting from a technology perspective, from a tech technologist perspective. Um, I think uh, the startup ecosystem has changed quite a bit, even in the last four years. So when, we, when I moved here, when I made offers to engineers to join TransferWise, um, while the brand was still decently known in London, a lot of people would look at the offer and say, well, the base salary is this and the stock options are this. But most people would dis disregard the stock option yeah. component and write it off basically yeah. as a nice to have, but they didn't care about it much. I think that's changed quite a bit yeah. um, over the years, given what's happening in the scene. No, I think back in those days, it was like uh, you go to a conference and say, put your hand up if you've ever converted options or had an exit. And it was super quiet. Exactly. So it was just the engine, you know, engineers like, oh, great, this all sounds great in Silicon Valley, but do you know anyone who's made money out of those things? Yeah, exactly. And I think that is um, changing now, which has been great. So whether it's us, a few other companies in the ecosystem who've turned around and given liquidity to early employees, uh -huh. I think this is going to seed the next generation of startups and angel investors. But it's exactly how the value was formed back in the day with HP and Compaq and other companies like, you know, uh, creating these uh, engineers and um, early employees who had liquidity to give back and build their next companies. And we already see companies uh, being formed by ex-transfer folks. And I 
I hope to see the same across the board. Mm. I'm seeing that from other companies who are doing well in, uh, in Europe. Um, so yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. I also think 10 years ago versus today, uh, being an engineer is much easier if you're not in the valley from the perspective of information dissemination and uh, the content you have sure. online. You can still learn a lot without having to go to, say, Stanford or Berkeley or, you know, um, the best, like, like Cambridge or Oxford. So, so I think that has also allowed, like, you know, people to be able to hone their skill and craft and uh, be able to build companies outside the valley. And how do you think uh, startup culture has evolved, uh, both versus Silicon Valley and in the last four years that you've been in the UK? Yes, I think uh, there's still a way to go around uh, this obvious thing we're talking about. So I think there still is, uh, while we are seeing more European founders and European companies to give out options, I think we're still in the minority. Right. Uh, there's a large group of people who um, uh, still believe in like, you know, the leadership team or a group of people, early founders or early employees who have a vested interest in the company uh, while the rest are still working on salary. Uh -huh. I actually know a company I would not name uh, who are doing some pretty impressive work in the payment space, uh, but pretty much the entire engineering team is contracting. And I don't understand how that could really lead to building a great product over time. Uh, which can sustain over the next five, six years. Um, it's, very, it's very different working on a project to exactly. feeling that exactly. ownership of yeah. being kept awake at three in the morning because you've really got to solve this. Exactly. And, and don't get me wrong, I think contracting is a great opportunity to bootstrap stuff and move things along, especially in the early days. But eventually, I think you want employees who are vested in the problem that they're solving for the longer term. Um, so I think some of that stuff still needs to be hashed out. But I think in due time, as companies get more successful, uh, employees, the prospective employees will ask for that and seek out companies who just have these offerings. Um, I think uh, overall investment has improved. Mm. Uh, I think still we are a much smaller pie of the larger investing market uh, from a VC perspective. But we are seeing now like you know, funds that are coming up which are specifically focused on Europe even though they might be uh, part of a larger fund in the US. Um, I mean, just to give you context, this time when we went out to raise funds, like we didn't have any problems. Like. You know, from right. a perspective of like, um, you know, European or uh, U.S. investors, um, so I think liquidity is there for businesses that are strong. It is interesting. I was uh, I was out with, uh, for dinner with a VC, and he was bringing up the specter of like, are we coming to an end stage, or you know, are we in a bubble? There's a yeah. lot of people raising a lot. There's that successive thing of everyone's getting to the billions, and now yeah. it's going higher and higher. Yeah. Are we getting to now deals where it's like, wow, is is that really worth it? Yeah. Um, do you have, yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting. Like, we're talking about the Decacorns now. People are saying the unicorns yeah. are like, <laughs> we can't talk about them because they're not a unicorn anymore. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I'm an, I'm an angel investor too. And I, I, I see that like the amount of funds that is flo floating around is like really high, even for like very, very early stage uh -huh. uh, folks. Um, I think it's fine. I think eventually it's like any other investing. Right? So the people who, are, who have the money and who, are, um, who want to take the risky bet will do it. Um, eventually, I think this will um, hash itself out. The bigger thing is, I think, when you're building a company, you think, first of all, what customer problem are you solving? Yeah. How are you creating impact? And how are you creating value for your customers? If you're focusing more on fundraising and only about that and valuations, then you're probably not going to succeed. Yeah. The second thing is, like, how do you do it sustainably? That's it. Eventually, I think one of the, found, one of the tricks that, uh, one of the pitfalls that some of the early founders get into is, um, you think you just, you know, Amazon did it early days, so you should do it where you give away stuff for free. Amazon wasn't giving away the core stuff for free. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were building a business on the size of like, you know, um, they're discounting certain things and making money on the other, uh, on other components, right? Yeah, that, that's sort businesses. of uh, burning cash to, uh, exactly. to do customer acquisition and therefore just feeding the cash into the fire. Exactly. You know, everyone points to Amazon as being like the example, yeah. not 
but it, but is it sustainable, especially yeah. you know if that money starts to uh, to get a bit more difficult to get? Yeah, I think if you don't have a plan to get the sustainability that you can write down, yeah, uh, even that money that's floating around the private market will go away because investors will eventually look for it. Maybe uh-huh. you can get buy in Series A and Series B, but beyond that. Like, you know, investors are smart enough to say, like, if you don't have a plan, I don't see how you, why I should give you money. Because uh, it works both ways. There are more companies spinning up too. So, uh, you know, there's more places to put money to. So, uh, what do you know now that you wish you'd have known four years ago when you, uh, when you were coming over to start TransferWise or to, to grow it? Wow, four years ago. Um, so, actually, like, I, I, just to be honest, uh, I was a little naive and worried that I, like, I had never built a team outside the Valley. Um, so it kind of was a great challenge, uh, but a personal challenge for me to see like, could I do it somewhere else? Sure. Um, and also worried about like, how would the culture be different and how do you attract and retain the best talent? Um, one of the things that I've seen in Europe is that actually people tend to pick a problem and tend to work on it for a while. Um, if they like, you know, see that they are having impact on the world, like TransferWise has seen, uh, I mean, every company sees churn, but like our churn is pretty low compared to a lot of um, other companies that I've seen. And one of the things that I think is uh, great uh, is because in the valley, you see this thing, what I call the shiny ball syndrome or the shiny toy syndrome. Yeah. Everybody around you is in, like raising more money. There's a new cool idea. There's very really smart people around. There's some smart people around in Europe too. But I think people tend to like commit and like put their head down and get work done. I think that's brilliant. And I wish I knew this a little bit earlier because I would put down more teams in Europe at that time. Uh, I built teams at eBay and PayPal, but I put, built teams in the Valley and then in China and India. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that would have been helpful. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you know, you live and learn. Um, but I say, if you ask me the question around 10 years ago when I was starting up younger as an engineer, um, I think I've learned as I've grown teams and teams this size now that, you know, fundamentally the technology is easier. It's the team and the people, that's hard. Like, how do you continue to scale the culture, attract the best people and keep them there uh, and inspire them that they really feel like they're committed to coming in and doing some of the best work? Like, you know, most of us, most of the people working in these companies are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, right? You know, it's still a young, young industry. And those are your prime years. How do you inspire somebody to get up and attract the smartest people to come and work on that? So I think building that culture and the team is the harder part. Uh, and as a lot of technologists in your younger years, you think, oh, technology is the biggest thing, but it's actually the people. Um, so that's probably been my biggest learning over the last 10 years, I would say. And so what advice do you give to young engineers that are joining TransferWise? Impact. Think about impact. Uh, it's very easy for an engineer to think that they've accomplished something because they wrote a new library or they changed out certain parts of the code to have something execute a little bit faster. And those things are important. I'm not saying they're not, but they're important at very large scale. Right? So just because Google and Netflix is doing something doesn't mean that you have to do it in your smaller startup. Right? It might be good, but Google and Netflix are doing it to solve very different problems. Um, I think you should always put the lens of impact on the work you're doing. And if you look back at your week's work and you say, what impact did I have on my customer? And if you didn't have that impact, you should reassess what you're doing. Uh, because especially in the early stage startups and just in general in a smaller team, there's so much to do and so many fires to fight. There's always going to be a longer list of stuff that you can do than you can actually finish. So if you have to prioritize, you prioritize based on impact. Um, one of the questions I ask uh, my engineers when like, and I'll do, like the team's gotten much bigger, I can't do one-on-ones with everybody, um, but I still do a lot of like, um, uh, one-on-ones with a lot of engineers across the teams. Um, and um, I ask them, uh, like, what are you proud of? in the last six months. 
I think it's very interesting because a lot of people like just have to like, sit back and uh, like reflect. And usually that lens is based on impact. And if that's based on impact, that's good. If it's based on like I shipped X, Y, and Z project, but I don't know what the impact was, it's a bad sign. Uh, so I think in general, just continue to focus on impact and mostly custom impact. Uh, what did you move? What numbers did you move? I think that's the most important. Words to live by. Harsh, thanks for joining us today. It was great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews from Money 2020 in Amsterdam. I'm thrilled to be joined by Patrick Gauthier, the VP of Amazon Pay. Hey. Good morning. Is it good morning for you? Uh, Seattle, Amsterdam, jet lag? It, it's, it's in the morning. Yes, <laughs> middle somewhere. of the night, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, we've got to start off with what's Amazon Pay? Amazon Pay, it's quite simple. It's the service by which any Amazon customer can uh, shop at other merchants. And what we enable uh, those merchants, those customers to do is to uh, leverage some of the information in the account of those customers. Okay, the most natural is payment method, but uh, the address book, your prime status, uh, the information the consumer chooses to release to the merchant, then the merchant can use to remove friction from the transaction. I've used it, actually. I have used it. And I, have, I did find it one, uh, it was, there was a trust element because I use Amazon quite a lot. I'm an Amazon Prime member. But secondly, not having to put in delivery information and where you can deliver it to, and what my credit card is, sort of fed it right through. Is, is that the standard use case? I rest my case. I mean, literally, you've said all the reasons why we're, we're in this business. Trust. Uh, the reality is... When you ask consumers what they care about in terms of where and when and how they shop, the number one reason is not price, the number one reason is not availability, number one reason is trust. And so, yes, there is a strong, especially for prime customers like you, thank you, uh, there is a strong bond of trust with Amazon. We don't take it lightly. We think, you know, this is something we need to nurture every day, every transaction. But that trust also enables us to do things, in particular in the context of another merchant, uh, that will result in, in less friction, right? Familiarity kind of translates into, uh, into a better experience. And then we use the technology to sort of think of how we can remove that friction, not just in checkout, but at other times in the, in the purchase journey. So an example, like today I will, I'll be talking about voice, now everybody is talking about, oh, buying with voice. But the reality is you can do so much more before, during, and after. And so that's the kind of the lens that we put. Where can we remove friction from the experience of the customer? And we know that when we do that, we nurture the relationship we have with them. We also benefit our merchant partner. It's a win-win. I guess there's a, um, there's a trade-off, though, and we've seen this famously with uh, Facebook, who brought out login with Facebook, and suddenly people are using that. But there was always this question about privacy and one company collecting all this data and using it against us. Do you see you know, issues, problems with that as well? Well, I don't know if it's uh, an issue or a problem. It's definitely something we pay attention to. I mean, we are, uh, we are very, very sensitive to protecting the privacy of consumers. There's a couple of you know, practical ways in which this uh, translates. We never share any information without the explicit consent of a customer. We don't monetize data. We don't sell data. We provide services that may leverage the data that we have uh, for a better experience, uh, but we don't monetize it. An, an example, for instance, how we, we, we leverage the data we have 
Um, with Amazon Pay, we use the same risk engine as we do on Amazon itself. So we're able to leverage the data that we have about all the activities that that buyer does to make sure this is really Patrick. This is not somebody impersonating Patrick. To protect the buyer and, of course, to protect also the merchant. That's, that's the way we think of data. Protect it at all costs, use it to have better services, and do everything with transparency as far as the buyer is concerned. So is that the value proposition for the merchant? Actually, it's uh, frictionless for the, or less friction for the consumer, but for the merchant, there's yeah. a risk element as well? Well, for merchants, definitely risk element. Generally speaking, for the merchant, you know, a higher conversion rate. So a, a declined transaction for, uh, uh, for risk purpose right, would be... Uh, would affect your conversion rate. For merchants, we fundamentally help them in two fronts. One of them is uh, better conversion. The other one is they see net new customers, in particular prime customers. So we definitely see a strong correlation between the prime status of an Amazon buyer and their propensity to use Amazon Pay. What we also know is that the prime buyers have a bit of a more binary uh, relationship with, with Amazon. And as soon as Amazon Pay is on a third-party site, some of those prime buyers will be more willing to interact with that merchant. Maybe counterintuitive, you know, how, many, how many retailers, quote retailers, do you, you know, do you know that share who their best customers are with a third party? Uh, and yes, it's counterintuitive, but we do it because it solves a customer problem. And we have 20 years of history that shows when you solve a customer problem, it's good for your own business. And it's an interesting evolution from, you know, selling books, moving out, selling other things, your own stock, to then allowing other people to host on your site, to now going out to actually their sites yeah, and doing yeah. some stuff there. Um, yeah, I know. It's, but uh, at the same time, it's not so surprising. So, you know, um, Jeff uh, has, has few principles that really apply to everything we do. The first one is solve a customer problem. Always start from a customer problem. Be clear on what you're solving. The second one is, you know, lots of things change in the world, but there's th certain things that remain constant, you know. Uh, most people that I know are not looking for a less convenient, more expensive experience with fewer things to get, right? And so as long as you continuously understand that there are certain things that stay constant. Now, the bar gets raised all the time. As long as we focus on continuously improving the experience on those things that are fundamental to customers, business will thrive. So why go, you know, why open marketplace? Because more selection. Um, why open ourselves to, you know, uh, why enable uh, uh, transactions into third-party merchants? Because, um, as, as, as broad and vast as the Amazon marketplace is, there will be many, many, many other things and experiences that people desire to have. And so why should we not enable the buyer the facility of, of buying whatever they love, wherever they find it? Sure. So you've grown pretty, uh, pretty explosively, I guess, given, given your uh, Amazon spread across the globe. 18 countries in four 18, years? Yeah, 18 right? countries in four years. Uh, in particular, big expansion in Europe over the last couple of years. Uh, and uh, we've also grown in terms of a uh, number of ways in which uh, you can use Amazon Pay, right? So it first started on the web, not too surprising. Then we moved into, uh, into uh, mobile in 2017, 2016. 
And from there, we started to expand, so both in uh, in-store ca uh, use cases, as well as on connected TVs, and now uh, really a big area of investment for us is anything related to voice. And with voice, it's not just in the transaction, but it's also before and after. Uh, so example of after, uh, something I'll talk today about in the keynote, uh, enabling Amazon Pay merchants to connect to the Alexa notification system. First use case is delivery, delivery notification. Why did we pick delivery? Because that's when we ask consumers, uh, what are they interested in? 42% uh, in the US say we want to know where a delivery is, 37% in Europe thought it was a pretty good bet, right? Um, from a merchant standpoint, it's also so much more elegant as an experience and frankly less costly than receiving a call. Um, another component that uh, we've introduced, uh, we've just introduced in particular for the European, uh, for the European countries with Alexa is a, is a universal buyer identifier. And the point of this is to, uh, is to be able to pick up the customer journey from wherever they left before. So let me explain. Um, I drink a lot of coffee. Nobody's perfect. And from Seattle, I mean, uh, it's obligatory, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Uh, and so, but I tend to reorder the same, you know, like everybody, I'm a creature of habit. So, yeah, the first, you know, from time to time, I might go back into my specific order that I do about once a month, and from time to time, I just want to be able to say, reorder. And it's so much easier if I just do it on Alexa, right? But that requires uh, the, the Alexa experience to be connected with the other experiences that I might have online. Another example uh, might be a wish list, right? Um, oh, you know, I need to, to, remind, to remember to do X. You know, pay the electricity bill on the 26th. And then being able to pick up from there uh, when I actually do the activity, which I may want to do online because that's easier, I want to see my consumption or whatever. So, you know, it's not an either or. We think voice complements a lot of things that you do online. And by threading the different touch points with a universal ID, we remove friction. Very interesting. And I, I like the, the uh, voice as a complementary uh, service. I think so many clients we talk to, big banks, are talking about, you know, holy voice. Let's, let's just focus on, on just the voice piece. But but by adding it to the other digital channels, it becomes uh, something much more. Yeah, I, I think, well, there, there's a couple of reasons for doing it. First of all, uh, let's face it, the experience is different. You know, the, the way you interact with voice is very, very different than you interact with a screen, right? It's more natural, but on the other hand, you do not have a lot of uh, context uh, permanence, right? With a screen, you know, that information remains. With voice, you may remember one or two questions before, but no, it's, sure. it's, it's, it's more dynamic. The discoverability of, of things. It's more dynamic on voice. Sure. Um, and then secondly, just like with mobile 10 years ago, or for that matter, web 20 years ago, we're not exactly sure yet what is the right set of experience. By the way, it's not just a question of state of the art, it's also a question of the progression of the consumer themselves. What is their area of comfort, right? 10 years ago, not a lot of people were doing mobile banking. Now, now it's more than half of people uh, because, because of sort of the growing comfort with yes, I'm protected and yes, you know, the, the, the evolution of the UX that is ever cleaner and cleaner. And the same is gonna happen with voice. So when you think about it that way, it's very natural to look at it as 
complementary to what you might do in your other channels. So have you seen uh, different challenges in the different 18 countries? I see, you know, for instance, that you've uh, recently launched in India, which must be a very different market with uh, Flipkart and Paytm and all of those sort of yeah. guys over there. Yeah. Like, what's it like in yeah. different countries? So, you know, one of the, I've been in payments for longer than I care to tell. And one of the things that makes payment interesting is, is indeed those so many nuances we have on there, including cultural nuances. And so when you're, when you're in, the, in, the, in payment or transactional business, you have to both at some level have solutions that can be globally deployed, but yet also locally executed. Because uh, different consumers in different areas of the world have different attitudes towards payment. US and England are far, far higher propensity to use credits than let's say mainland uh, Europe. Uh, Germany and Japan have a strong attachment to cash. Compare, for instance, to northern European countries where cash has been on the decline for you know, almost two decades. And so in countries like in India uh, or in the Middle East, which are still massively cash-dominated economies, there is this uh, incredible push to, for electronification of cash because through that uh, really comes the opportunity to accelerate, uh, accelerate the, the economy generally by, by leveraging you know, digital technologies. Um, so you mentioned your sort of vast experience of payments in terms of PayPal and Visa and now Amazon. Um, you know, we're at Money 2020. There seems to be EPOS uh, uh, innovation. There seems to be MasterCard, Visa, all the big card schemes. We've got Alipay that's using its Chinese presence to come across into Europe. We've got Amazon Pay that's pushing through. How do you sort of think about the market and what everyone's doing and how Amazon uh, is, is competing there? Well... You know, the North Star at Amazon is always start from what we can solve for the customer. So, to some extent, even though I've been for a long time in payments, uh, and even though it says Amazon Pay, I actually don't think of this business as a payments business. I think of it much more as a trust intermediation business. And, and it's, a, it's a nuanced difference, but actually it's far-reaching. Because it means, for instance, that we don't limit our perspective to checkout. If there are things we can do in check-in, right, when the customer arrives, that will remove checkout steps, then everybody wins. And so, um, you know, often case, uh, I think the traditional part of the payments industry is very focused on payments for the sake of payments. Our focus is on buying and removing friction that consumers may experience when buying. I think it's interesting because we, we, we see that a lot. The, you know, whether it's lending or payments, the traditional way of looking at this thing is a financial transaction. But the context that it happens in, uh, and especially the ability to layer in these intelligent digital services that are coming along, means that actually every lending action is not just lending. It, it's very specific. And, and then buying is very different from payments because you've got all of these jobs to be done, you've got all of these needs. Well, you know, I, I don't know anybody that wakes up in the morning and says, today I want to pay for something, right? Yeah. Uh, but you said something really important. You used the word, the word context. Here's, I, I, you know, heard it here first, but I, I, I will submit the following. The last 10 years, especially in digital technology, have been a quest for keyword relevance. I submit that the next 10 years will be a quest for context relevance.
And, and what this means is no longer will you connect based on you know, a snippet of information about what the customer is doing in that moment. Increasingly, you will connect to the customer's context and story and help across multiple touch points to remove friction and to simplify people's lives. That, I think, is, is, is what's on the horizon. And that's why, that's why we're leaning into voice. Because, you know, we say voice, but voice has existed for a long time. What has not is the AI behind the voice. And when we, when we talk about voice, what we're really talking about today is, is smart assistants, uh, where the, the, the technology is progressing in leaps and bounds. And we're really in a position to actually create delightful experiences and simpler experience for consumers. I love the context piece. I, I think that's uh, I think that's a great. I'm going to quote you. Um, uh, I, in, with this journey that you've been on, what do you know now that you wish you'd have known five years ago? Oh boy, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I, I have uh, I've been very lucky to be at Amazon now for for four years and. Um, there's a couple of things that always were uh, on the horizon, but uh, that have really become much sharper for me. The first, really this notion of nothing matters until you're clear on the customer problem you solve. You know, how many times do you go at conferences like this and you see great ideas, interesting ideas, but you're not sure whether they solve a problem, Sure, right? And lots of energy can be spent on that. And so, you know, I, I, have, I have scars on my back because of that. I think, you know, that, that relentless focus on customer, solving customer problem, which is something that is at the heart of what Amazon does, I wish I had really uh, understood both the power and the dimension of it much sooner in my career. And so for someone starting in fintech now or starting in this sort of industry, what advice would you give them? Be patient. Uh, you know, adoption. Most people don't want to learn new ways to use money, right? And so, adoption tends to come with generational shift, and that implies being, you know, being patient. Um, you know, mobile banking did not happen overnight. It took many, many years, right? The first, the very first time I worked on a mobile experiment. Uh, for commerce was in 1999 with the Palm 5, you know, oh, wow. with the, little, with the yeah. little antenna, you know, black and white, right? And, uh, and this was, you know, an effort of providing uh, locally relevant coupons to buyers. 1999, 20 years ago. So I think, you know, it's super important to have patience when you are, when you are in a money-related business, even if technology moves super fast the needs of consumers evolve more gradually. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me. Carta Worldwide provides issuer processing designed for the evolution of banking and payments. Carta is the engine behind fintech innovation around the globe, empowering new disruptors and enabling established banks to develop new products for the rapidly changing market. Carta's next generation platform excels where legacy systems are challenged, delivering adaptive, modern solutions for bank challengers, money movers, and the leading innovators of the digital economy. With Trulio, we help organizations find out if it's truly you online. 
global identity verification through Trulia's digital identity network enables organizations to verify 5 billion individuals in over 190 countries to help meet KYC and AML requirements and reduce fraud around the world. Speed up your customer onboarding online from days to seconds. One contract, one integration, one solution. Visit trulio.com today. That's T-R-U-L-I-O-O.com. Welcome to FinTech Insider Interviews, coming, I was going to say live, but recorded from Amsterdam and Money 2020. I'm Jason Bates. It's my pleasure to be joined by Roland Palmer, head of Alipay Europe. Hey. Hi. Great to meet you. I'm sure you've had the busiest few days like ever. Everyone must want to talk to Alipay. I would say every day is busy at Alipay, <laughs> not just Money 2020, yeah. So to kick us off, and I'm not even sure why I'm asking this question because surely everyone's heard of you by now, but can you just give us the, what is Alipay? Like, yeah, what is Alipay? Yeah, sure. So uh, we like to uh, talk about Alipay as a lifestyle super app. Uh, and essentially, um, it was born within uh, Alibaba uh, back in 2004. Uh, and it was an escrow system. Basically, um, because there was a lack of trust between buyers and sellers, uh, Alipay would hold the funds uh, before these uh, transactions actually took place. So if you uh, ordered a, a good online, uh, uh, you would wait until it actually arrived and you say, yes, it's the right product, the right quantity, and it's all, you know, hasn't been sure. damaged. And then uh, the payment would be released. Um, now, jumping ahead uh, to today, um, Ant Financial is a separate company from Alibaba. It's a sister company. And Alipay is one of its main products. Uh, we have today around uh, a billion users. And uh, what uh, I'm busy doing uh, with my team here in Europe uh, is uh, really uh, helping merchants uh, tap into the opportunity provided by the Chinese outbound tourist. And okay. here's an interesting statistic for you. 150 million trips made by Chinese tourists outside China a year. And I always say to people, Try and picture that in your head. It's a couple of big European countries on the move. Um, and, that, and that is a phenomenon in the tourist business. Uh, but those are not just any tourists. They're middle class. Um, they are the new middle class. And they're really interested in brands and great products and experiences in Europe. So if you're a merchant uh, and you can uh, link up Alipay, which is pretty easy to do, actually, uh, in your store or in your restaurant or you know, whichever kind of uh, uh, um, uh, tourist uh, um, attraction you might run, you can tap into new consumers, not only when they're there, but also before they come. Wow. So we use location-based servicing. Um, and and uh, when uh, consumers would arrive uh, in the airport, we can already tell them about your store. We can tell them about your proposition, about the, you know, the lovely stories behind brands, and also about uh, you know, particular uh, offers you might have going at that stage. And uh, we call it drive to store. You know, we can drive additional consumers to your store. And I think that's a revolution in, in retail. Um, and I always say to people, Alipay is not about payments. It's payments plus. Mm. And the plus is really all that digital marketing. As you can bring, you tap into those millions and millions of uh, Chinese tourists coming into Europe. Um, it's really exciting. So I guess there's two things I'd like to dig in there. The first is that sort of uh, inconsistency with people from Europe go to China and then can't buy anything because they don't have Alipay and people from China coming across. In fact, I was talking to a VC the other day who'd sat in business class next to a woman that was combing through banknotes. And he was like, what? Like, how much have you got? And, you know, or, or he was trying to estimate. And he thought she had like 10,000 pounds or something. And she looked across and she said, 
you don't have Alipay in, in Europe. It's like that, that seems like a massive opportunity, to, I guess, to your point. I would love someone in my team to meet that person <laughs> because actually we do have Alipay in Europe. Um, we have Alipay in tens of thousands of merchants today in Europe. Um, and when we look at the growth this year uh, versus the same period last year, uh, it's uh, three times as many merchants now accepting wow. Alipay. So this isn't just growth, this is hyper growth. Um, uh, and it's because the merchants are really excited uh, to uh, join this uh, uh, commercial opportunity. So you've got the merchants, but how many, uh, how many end users do you have for Alipay outside of China? Because I guess that's the other interesting Yeah, so area. there's a, a 150 million tourists uh, leaving uh, China every right. year to go and visit somewhere. Um, the majority are still within what we call the four-hour fly zone. Okay. Yeah? So uh, go to Korea, Thailand, maybe Japan. Um, and uh, uh, we've actually interviewed um, our consumers on the mobile. We don't need to go to you know, market research agencies. So we said to them, where's a new place you would like to go to that you haven't been before, okay. not within the four-hour fly zone? And the number one place they want to come to in the next 12, 24 months, I think you can guess, Europe. So I always say to the merchants uh, that I speak to, uh, whether it's a you know, CEO, CIO, CFO, uh, CMO, all of these kind of you know, executive level who have to make the decision about what kind of payment methods are they going to offer. So if you think this is a big trend today, get ready, because we can already see through our consumers and our data and prediction that the trend is going to be much, much bigger in the coming year. So join us and, uh, and, uh, and, and offer this to your consumers. But, but I can't sign up to Alipay as a consumer now, or can I? No, uh, Alipay is uh, only for those who have a bank account in China. Uh, however, what we're doing now is we're partnering with uh, local e-wallets uh, around uh, the world. So we've started actually in Southeast Asia and in India. And um, we're talking about, um, uh, for example, Paytm in India, uh, Kakao Pay in Korea, uh, Gcash in Philippines. And you've got nine of these um, e-wallet partnerships. And why is that exciting? Because it means, um, you know, in a few years from now, uh, if you have um, Paytm on your mobile, you'll be able to come around the world and actually shop where there is a mobile uh, wallet possibility. So it's not just about the brand Alipay. Um, it's actually about enabling uh, hundreds of millions of uh, consumers to shop with their mobile. So I, I'm sure the markets differ, you know, across, as you say, uh, Asia, India, the, you know, Europe. Like, what are the differences that you're seeing? Well, I'm, I'm really looking at Europe, to be honest, yeah. And uh, what I see in, in Europe is a lot of exciting innovation um, and a lot of companies um, trying to do a local uh, e-wallet. Um, and, and what they tend to do is to focus in one country, so they'll focus in their local country. And I think the trend in the coming years is that they will want to go uh, pan-European uh, to offer European consumers mobile uh, payments. So that is one of the trends that, uh, that, I, that I'm seeing here in Europe. Um, the trend that we see from Alipay um, is, is, is really in terms of uh, uh, technology, uh, in terms of uh, what we can uh, uh, give to the uh, consumers inside the app. There are more than 100 different things you can do sure. inside the Alipay app. Um, but originally, all of those are, are sort of, you know, paying your gas bill or um, uh, booking your doctor's appointment. All of those things you do in China. Sure. Now, the real exciting challenge, I think, for us here, working with European partners, is to say, how could you use something exciting that you have and tap it into the Alipay app? Sure. Because consumers don't want to have hundreds of different apps on their phones. They want sure. one-stop shop where we can do everything. And uh, what we've actually announced just today uh, is a partnership with a company in the UK called Split, 
uh, and they're essentially a mobility marketplace. Uh, so um, what this means is that when um, Chinese tourists arrive in London, they'll be through a mini program um, uh, uh, in their um, uh, Alipay app, they'll be able to uh, order a, t a taxi. Okay. And they can do that with, uh, actually around the world, um, um, Split has access to 1.5 billion users in a thousand cities. So we found a very exciting partner who works with other partners who sure. are in the taxi uh, uh, business. And we're launching uh, in the UK and Southeast Asia. And uh, uh, after the summer, we'll be launching in many more markets. Why am I excited about this specifically? Is because it shows that if, if you, you don't have to be uh, a company from China to participate in this exciting innovation, uh, all you need to do is partner up. And if you've got an exciting concept, uh, we're open for business. Yeah. I. I love that idea that uh, you know gone are the days of the naked transaction, the you know just the financial thing. Oh, I bring a card out and away I go. The, and the Alipay with not even talking about the network being that lifestyle super app starts to talk about the as you say the before, during, after, beyond, and suddenly you're into loyalty and services and all kinds of things that then improve consumer the consumer experience, um, but also benefit merchants in some way. And that's. That context and those intelligent services, you know, really seem to be, be driving that things forward. Exactly. And, and the heart of it all is technology. And so we are using um, you know, AI, we're using blockchain, we're using big data. Um, uh, next to Alipay, we also, under Unfinancial, have other um, uh, financial services products which we're offering. And through all that technology, um, we can actually bring uh, financial services to the unbanked. So it's inclusive finance. That's actually at the heart of our company's uh, mission today. Millions of people who didn't have access before to credit can now get small loans. Um, and we work with a, an exciting kind of vision where we say we want actually to, get, to achieve 310. So what do we mean by that, 310? We want uh, a small business to have, take three minutes to apply for a loan, uh, for it to take one second based on the data for it to be approved or rejected, and zero manhandling. And, and so if you can imagine if you're a, a small business and you just want a $1,500 loan, you can apply by this kind of methodology. Um, and that, I think, is a real revolution uh, in uh, the world of inclusive finance. So in addition to the Alipay and the cross-border tourists, we've got a lot going on uh, in China as well on the whole inclusive uh, finance part. Yeah, it seems like expansion on a variety of levels from, from both geographic you know, allowing people from China to, to enjoy all these services across the world, as well as that deepening an already look, seemingly ridiculous breadth of services from paying a gas bill to a doctor's appointment to paying, you know, booking and paying, leaving a restaurant and, and having the loyalty stuff. Uh, why don't you think we've seen some version of Alipay or, or that super app in the, in the West? So I, I say that, you know, when, when we look at uh, what's happening in China today, um, we see a kind of Silicon Valley of the East. Uh, there, there is a huge uh, uh, amount of innovation and excitement going on there. So, of course, we do, we do see innovation in the West, but it's the Silicon Valley of the, of the West. Huh? Um, so I'm not saying that there's only excitement in China, um, but, but I think China uh, uh, made a growth spurt um, and, and jumped straight to mobile. And that's the difference. We missed completely the, uh, the whole desktop and laptop. Uh, and mobile payments and, and actually living on your mobile. Uh, somebody made a joke the other day and said um, uh, when they uh, wake up, uh, you know, in, in China, the first thing they look at is their phone, not the partner living, you know, lying next to them in the bed in the morning. Uh, so, so it really is uh, uh, so integral in, in uh, the life of a uh, modern consumer. And I think uh, because of that, it's allowed uh, all the innovation uh, to take place at the, at the current speed. 
Um, but but I, I, again, I'm very excited to see uh, uh, innovation happening in Europe as well today. So you were the CEO of a retail company, you did some consulting. You know, how do you get your job? Because it sounds amazing. Uh, actually, I joined uh, uh, Alibaba uh, three and a half years ago. And uh, back then, uh, our chairman, uh, Jack Ma, was talking about the concept of new retail. And that really excited me because I came from retail and I was busy, you know, with the whole concept of what we back then called omni-channel, sure. you know, transforming stores into uh, uh, online and offline. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, the uh, transition into uh, Alibaba and then uh, um, I kind of... Uh, became fascinated uh, last year by uh, what was happening at Alipay, the sister, sister company, and started talking to uh, colleagues there. And they said, oh, why don't, you, uh, why don't you join us? So I'm not a uh, financial services guy from background, uh, but I am a, uh, a businessman, and I can see the opportunities for merchants around Europe to, uh, to jump on board here. Um, and, uh, and that's what excites me. And it seems like you've been through quite a journey for, you know, through that process. What do you know now that you wish you'd have known four or five years ago? Um, uh, uh, speed up and fail fast. Yeah, so um, I think that's uh, one, of, one of the things that is core in, in our company. It's a very, very fast uh, uh, speed of uh, uh, agility, trying new things all the time. And don't be afraid uh, uh, to fail. As long as you fail fast, get on to the next one and, uh, and keep going. And, that, and that's how innovation breaks through. Um, you have two or three uh, failures, and the fourth one is a, is a, you know, a big success. Um, and uh, that's what we're doing every day. And, I mean, that's fascinating as well. I, I talk to banks a lot about their operating model and how digital isn't just a, you know, a new app. It's actually about a different way of doing business. Do you have any insights about you know, the way that you organize in order to be able to fail fast, in order to be able to do that? Like, what's it like working in Alibaba and Alipay? Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things that we do um, is we don't use email very much. Okay. And uh, we don't do many meetings. <laughs> okay. So those would be the two tips I would give. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, we have our own um, app called Ding Talk. Okay. And we use that for um, uh, communicating. And that enables us uh, to run uh, many, many different uh, projects and conversations uh, with multiple stakeholders in the firm, but also outside because it's an open app. And uh, you can actually join as well. And so we might even see you next time on, uh, on Ding Talk. I'm going to ha definitely have a look. Uh, and when it comes to, I mean, I come from a startup background, and I guess we're talking about these small multidisciplinary teams that are, you know, have some autonomy. I, I, is there a, a similar thing with uh, Alibaba and Alipay? Or like, what's the organizational structure like? Yeah, so, I mean, our head office is in Hangzhou in, uh, in China. Um, and uh, the majority of our employees are actually engineers because we're doing high tech. And we're doing sure. exciting uh, 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 technological um, breakthroughs. Um, in, in Europe... Uh, we're essentially busy with a few things. Uh, first of all, is you know, talking to merchants about what, sure. what the opportunity is from Alipay. Um, and uh, secondly, we have uh, tech teams here because what, you, know, you can talk uh, to yeah. all of our partners, but you also need to get it enabled. And sure. uh, many companies in Europe will have uh, you know, long pipelines, IT pipelines, yeah, that yeah. you have to sort of uh, sure. see, you know, are we going to be prioritized within your uh, six-month pipeline? Uh -huh. um, those are the kind of conversations that uh, our tech team gets involved in. Uh, with IT directors. And then we have a marketing team who essentially uh, talks to all of the marketing teams of all of the brands in Europe and says, would you like to take part in the most exciting digital marketing today? Um, and uh, yeah, usually it's not a very uh, difficult uh, conversation. Uh, everybody's uh, interested if it's relevant, if their brand is relevant for uh, Chinese um, tourists, um, then uh, usually we're in business. And so what's your biggest challenge? Biggest challenge um, is managing the priorities. Um, in a situation of hyper growth, the business, you know, more than trebling versus versus last year. 
how do you manage priorities? Priorities on projects, priorities on uh, partners, on customers, and, uh, and of course, uh, continuously uh, working with our head office and, uh, and making sure that uh, everybody's aware of what's happening here in Europe. A lot of challenges, but also sure. a lot of excitement. So, and so if a, uh, a fintech or a merchant or, or someone wants to get in contact with you or your team in order to uh, talk about how they get involved, like how do they contact you? Well, uh, all of the team in Europe is uh, on LinkedIn, so uh, that's usually the, uh, the method to, uh, to get in touch. Perfect. Well, Roland, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews coming from Money 2020 in Amsterdam. Um, I'm David Breer and it's a pleasure to be joined by Mark Barnett. So Mark, I'm going to read your job title just so I get it right. So MasterCard President, UK, Ireland, Nordics and the Baltics. That is right. Yes, thank you. That is a long title. It's a long title. It just about fits on the business card. It does. But who uses business cards these days? Very, very true. So how are you doing today? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks. It's my first day. I wasn't here yesterday, so I'm really looking forward to... uh, Getting around the show. Okay, well, you're probably going to be the only person who's bright-eyed today, then. I think after the <laughs> after the end of day one party, I think everybody else is feeling a little bit... Yeah, uh, I had a good sore. night's sleep, I'm pleased to say. <laughs> All right, first up, I mean, this is going to be a podcast, so do you listen to podcasts? I do listen to podcasts. I listen to all sorts of uh, different types. Uh, actually, the podcast I listen to most is Desert Island Disc, catching okay. up on those. Nice. <laughs> And what would be your Desert Island Discs? I feel like we need to delve into that one. <laughs> oh, you caught me there. No, I have a fairly broad and eclectic taste. Uh, I mean, with iPads and iPods and all things these days, you don't need to make those decisions, do you, which is good. No, this is true. This is true. I'll let, I'll let um, iTunes make the decision for me. <laughs> all right. One of the things that we talk about a lot at 11FS is we talk about the banking battlefield. And we've sort of heard you talk about the, the battle for payments a lot. Um, how do you see this playing out? You know, what, what's this landscape looking like right now? Well, I mean, there's... There's a couple of obvious areas in the battle for payments. Um, The first is uh, the battle with cash. And still, around the world, 85% of all payment transactions are made using cash. So there's a lot of runway there in terms of turning those uh, uh, cash payments into electronic payments. But interestingly, in some of the territories I look after, we've got to a point where um, electronic payments have been so successful that we're now talking about the right to have access to cash, which incidentally we absolutely agree with. Individuals should have a choice about the way they pay. Obviously it's my job to try and make sure there's as many uh, digital payment mechanisms out there to make it really easy to switch from cash to electronic, but still we're not saying that people shouldn't have access uh, to cash in the future. So there's the cash versus electronic, and then I think the second frontier is one that's only just beginning to open up, and that's the account-to-account payments versus um, the card payments or push payments versus the pull payments, if you like. Um, with open banking, we've started to see a fair bit of activity around account aggregation, but the payment initiation side of things is a slower burn. Not quite sure where that's going to take us. You'll see an announcement that we're making a little bit later today about some of our solutions in the open banking world because we do think for those use cases to be user-friendly, provide the, uh, uh, the safety and the guarantees that something like card payments does, they need quite a lot of extra work. And uh, we're, we're, we're prepared to do that. You saw we acquired Vocalink um, a couple of years ago, and that's our beginning to understand our way through the account payment space. Mm. I mean, there's, lots of, uh, there's definitely lots of road to go in that market, isn't there? You know, open banking is definitely in its infancy, but it's, it's interesting to see players like yourself creating capability, whereas really the banks were the ones who we were expecting to do so much in that space. Do you, do you think actually it's going to be down to providers 
creating the maybe more of the innovations in this space and, and the big organizations taking more of a, a regulatory approach to it? Yeah, I, I think our job is to make the ecosystem work or try and make the ecosystem work. Um, and if that in some way cannibalizes card payments, so be it. I mean, we'd rather eat ourselves than be eaten by somebody else. I mean, that's a very uh, grown-up way of looking at it. And actually, it's, it's one of those ones, I, I, the difference between defense and offense. You know, yeah. being in a situation where you're always looking for an opportunity rather than trying to protect an existing revenue model, which yeah. is where I think many of the big banking organizations sort of particularly get themselves into. And I, you know, I think there is definitely a place uh, for the PISPs in consumer-initiated payments. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. Um, I think it'll take a little while for them to come online, and then we'll have to look at... I mean, there's certain use cases that'll never work in open banking as far as I can see. When you book a hotel room and you need to make a pre-authorization, how do you do that in, a, in an open banking world where payment is instant and irrecoverable? Um, just a question, I don't know, maybe somebody will crack it, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how. I mean, um, bizarrely, so chatting to Imran yesterday uh, from Open Banking, actually, I think they are looking to try and put measures in place for those things to, to almost just alleviate the, it's not just a, a card behind the bar type mentality, you know, where anybody can use it for anything. Um, but, uh, but I think this is a, this is a journey, right? We're, we're really at the beginning of what Open Banking and all of the changes from a regulatory perspective probably really mean. Um, yeah. But, um, but I, I guess maybe from but payment... I, I mean, I think what happens is you start layering on the additional protections and the additional functionalities that card payments traditionally give you. And you also start layering on a level of cost as well. And I think what some people in the open banking world think is they can provide payments incredibly cheaply. You know, the cost of a faster payment in the UK, for example. But if you add disputes, you add chargebacks, you add fraud management, you add KYC and MAL... <coughs> AML, uh, you add uh, uh, the ability to do a pre-auth and pretty much you're back. Back to where we were. <laughs> back to where we were. And where we were, is, we think, is incredible value because although you might find some retailers complaining about the cost of payments, you never hear them talk about the value of payments. And we think that value massively outweighs um, the cost that you'll see them paying. Yeah. Um, as I say, there aren't many retailers that are going to stand up and say that, but the reality is if you try to recreate it, and if they try to recreate it using the PISP mechanism and add on all those protections, um, they'll end up pretty much where they are today, yeah. would be my estimation. So I, I guess moving from payments to, to fintech, you know, I think you know, with what you've, uh, you know, MasterCard have done over the last, I'd say, five plus years, um, you guys have been pretty much the provider for most of the fintechs that have come to market and scaled. Um, I guess there's lots of sort of partnerships that have taken place to, uh, to sort of establish you guys as that sort of center point, but how have you gone about that? So, uh, you're right, about five or six years ago, we took a very deliberate decision that we were going to not just look at and manage, look after and manage the licensed issuers in the prepaid space, which has morphed into the fintech and neobank space, um, but we were going to put a team together that looked after, yes, the bin sponsors, but the program managers, the processors, the distributors. So manage the whole value chain. Um, and we've got between 20 and 30 principal licensees in that space. We've got over 200 programs. And it's really the program at the program level that the differentiation happens. So um, I think our very deliberate decision uh, to, to go after and manage that space those years ago, I think our competition is trying to catch up, but it's got a lot of catching up to do because 
uh, uh, you know, I would say about 90% of, of the programs that you see out there are MasterCard branded. Um, you know, sadly, our debit share is a, is, uh, is, is a different story. Um, and that's probably one of the motivation, motivations for us going after the fintech space so hard. Mm. And, and how have you seen, I guess, a different dynamic there? You know, the, you've got um, you know, organizations like Monzo and, yeah. and uh, sort of the dynamic there between working with a, you know, a small, smaller startup as opposed to a, an RBS or a Lloyd's, you know. Totally different dynamic. Yeah. You know, uh, the big banks, they have what they call scheme teams that, that, that are there to manage people like us and go through our pricing line by line and do all those sorts of things. Um, the last thing a Monzo or a Revolut or a Starling wants is to be putting people against managing the schemes. They want uh, a very simple pricing arrangement. They want, <coughs> very, they want global licenses and, and global deals. They're, they're looking for sim simplified collateral, collateral approaches uh, and they want to move quickly, 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 quickly. And we've really had to kind of rewire the internal workings of our machine uh, MasterCard to make that to make that possible, yeah. but I think we have. And if you talked, I was with Tom at Monzo just um, a couple of days ago. Um, I think they'd agree that we've uh, we've come a long way since the first interactions. Mm. Well, that's good. It's uh, you know changing relationships require a different approach, don't they? Yeah. But uh, and like I say, it's it's very much. Uh, I, I would have imagined the engagement, like you say, from a, a scheme team uh, at a big bank is is almost its pseudo procurement. Uh, yes. And their, you know, their requirements are going to be very different. About it's going to be less about service and more about unit economics in terms of, uh, you know, the negotiations of the deals. And I think that's the really exciting thing about the fintech sector. You know, these companies uh, are servicing millions of customers with hundreds of staff. I mean, that's extraordinary. If you think about um, a branch-based model something like Monzo, uh, sorry, some, something like Metro, um, deliberately a branch-based base model, but the staff ratio then has to be at an order of magnitude different. Yeah. So if you can do something digital first, uh, like the neobanks have managed to do, then you, you're really changing the business model fundamentally in terms of uh, the cost-based or, or the cost to serve. Once they reach some scale in terms of customer numbers, I think you're going to see them adding on a fuller value proposition, a fuller set of banking products, and then service all that in this very skinny and light model. And, uh, you know, I don't have a crystal ball to see who's going to win or if one day they're all going to merge or, or whatever, but I think it's, it's the lightness of their business model, the fact they own the stack from uh, top to bottom... <coughs> that they have no legacy issues in terms of systems or culture or process uh, that means they are very exciting. We're, we're, we're really proud to be their partners. Very good. Well, I, I guess um, one of the things that you guys released this week so was the European Digital Study, and I'm going to read a couple of the stats out of it because I guess it's not just us getting excited about this. It seems like proper humans out there in the real world yep. are as well. So apparently 84% of people using, uh, are using digital banks regularly. 63% yep. use mobile banking apps regularly. Uh, and more than half of Europeans say they'd consider switching to a digital bank uh, in the not-too-distant future. So, so I guess, you know, with that said... 
it means doubling, tripling down on the partnerships, right? Because these guys are going to get only more and more and more and more important in the market. Absolutely. Um, that statistic that 50% would consider switching, just the fact that 50% have heard of these guys, they haven't done any advertising. Very or, true. Or literally, they're right at the beginning. It's all been word of mouth. Yeah. And to pick up millions of customers through word of mouth means you're doing something extraordinary. That extraordinary isn't a, silver, a single silver bullet. It's just making the whole experience of dealing with your finances that much easier. Yeah. Um, you know, people dismiss them as saying, well, they've got a cool app. But a cool app's really important. And if all the processes that sit behind that app uh, are really simple, are really smart, um, uh, then you do have a big advantage. And I think, uh, I think that's where, where these guys are. On the mobile banking app <coughs> piece of the story, that's growing very fast as well. So as you said, about two-thirds of people use a mobile banking app, two-thirds of the adult population. I think that'll be 90% in a couple of years' time. And then start to think about it in an open banking world. Effectively, that mobile banking app is your shop window into the bank behind. And it makes sense to put as many products and improve the products that you have in that shop behind the shop window, which is the mobile banking app. And one of the things that we, we uh, think banks should put in that shop, as it were, is something called Pay by Bank app. Mm. And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's something that uh, was conceived by Vocalink before we bought them. But uh, uh, we're now in the process, very high priority for me and my division, in the process of uh, rolling that out in the UK to start with. And put simply, it enables you to do, use your mobile banking app for shopping online. Uh, very simply, wherever you see the Pay by Bank app button, and we're currently putting that button across merchants right across the UK, you push the button and it, it opens your mobile banking app. You authenticate in the normal way. It'll say, do you want to make this payment to Boots for £20? You say yes, and boom, in the background, an instant payment, a faster payment has been pushed to, in this case, Boots' Merchant Acquirer. Um, doesn't sound all that revolutionary, but for the first time you can use your mobile banking app for shopping. Uh, it's good for consumers, they get to see their balance in real time, getting decremented, so no, and that's very important to a lot of people yeah. at the end of the month, wanting to avoid overdraft charges and the like. So their updated balance in real time, no pending transactions. For the merchant, <coughs> well it's a really, really simple uh, experience where we hope abandonment rates will be uh, lower um, and for banks it's it's a it's an open banking play using faster payments but with all the advantages of those things that you get with cards like disputes and chargebacks mm. and uh, anti-fraud measures and I, like. I mean if for anybody who's used to using you know 2FA on their Gmail account you know yep. this is a, a very slick customer experience to really potentially have a massive impact on fraud, right? You know, this, so this is a, I imagine banks must be very keen for you to, to sort of yes. give them that, uh, that service really quickly. Well, we, we um, HSBC are already live with it, but it's not being promoted very heavily because we've got to get the merchant side of the equation yeah. up now. Um, Barclays are building um, it into their main mobile banking app, should be there by the end of the year. And then on the merchant side, we have um, World Pay, Barclay Card, Elevon, Global Payments, all working towards getting their merchant bases on board. Great. So it's an ecosystem play. Yeah. So it's going to take some time and some persistency of effort. 
um, as I keep telling my management. <laughs> but if you think about contactless, that was probably our last big ecosystem play. We launched it in the UK in 2004. It went live on the underground with practically no volume, 2014. Now it's nearly half of all transactions. Yeah. And the, the thing it's done is rip an awful lot of cash out of the system because once you understand that you can tap for a small value payment, although that long tail of cash transactions starts to disappear. I think probably the next step for the UK is what's happened in the other markets I look after, which is a peer-to-peer -peer payment platform, which we, we do have in the form of PayM, yep. but we haven't really optimised it yet. I'd love to see if we can do something about that. Yeah, I think uh, you know, the, the sort of VIPs and Swish and the types of stuff that we've sort of seen in the Nordic market, I think the banks embraced it in a very different way than, uh, than actually peer-to-peer -peer in the, the UK was. Yeah. Uh, and it'd probably require it to be done to them, I think. Uh, you know, any, any area where I find consortium, they generally do the lowest common denominator from a capability well, perspective. I, you know, I think the banks were keen and they, they were prepared to fund the build of it and everything. But where it lost its way is it was launched under different brands at different times with different functionality. Yeah. Um, something we're quite good at, MasterCard, is running a consumer scheme. Yeah. Uh, this was an interbank organisation that runs interbank schemes like BACs and faster payments on really well. But if you're going to run a consumer scheme, you've got to have consistent marketing messages, a very consistent product yeah. uh, and user experience. Uh, and so those, those kind of franchise rules that you need to put around the product have to be very, very strongly adhered to. And that's something we're quite good at. So I wouldn't mind seeing if there's something we can do to try and get a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, mechanism. Because again, it comes back to that sort of social responsibility piece that people should have access to cash yep. um, if they want to use cash. But let's give them some other alternatives that are really cool and easy to use so that they might not want to. Yeah, I agree. So your first day here at Money 2020, yes. you've got a, a lot of things to go and sort of look at. What, have you sort of picked anything out on the agenda you're particularly uh, excited about? Um, no, I always want, love just wandering around the, uh, the stalls and seeing the, uh, the demos. I'll obviously check out the competition. Yeah. <laughs> Covertly, right? You're going to take Co the I'll take turn my badge, badge around and slide into their, uh, the, into their meeting room. No. Um, uh, I, I'm meeting a whole bunch of clients here. It's a great place to, to, to catch up with people. Obviously, we see people um, in our home markets as we travel about, but if everyone all is all coming to the same place. So we've got a little group of meeting rooms up in, up in the corner somewhere, and um, I've got a whole back-to-back -back session of, of those. I'm on stage tomorrow. Fantastic. Um, I'm looking forward to it. It's always, um, to me, Money 2020 is the best of all these the, the shows that we do, it's, I remember going to it in Copenhagen thinking it was great and it's just grown and grown since then. Yeah. So. I mean, it's, it's great to see such a massive community coming around, people that are really sort of passionate about the subject matter. Yeah. So, uh, awesome. Uh, where can people find out more about you? So, if you come along to our MasterCard stand, um, it's pretty cool. There's prizes to be won there. Very There's good. lots of demos to see. So, um, make sure you come and say hello. Fantastic. And for me, you can, you know where to find me, right? Go over to Twitter, at David Breer. I mean, pretty much every other social media at this stage you can find me on as well. So uh, thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast, review us on iTunes, and we really love reading those reviews. Thanks very much. Goodbye.